the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Aunt Rachel does it again. Yes, Dr. Rachel Levine has done Pennsylvania proud again. He did it in Alaska, paid a visit in his capacity as assistant health secretary to something called Identity Alaska. That's a nonprofit community center that, quote, serves the LGBTQ. Um, IA2S plus an allied community. I'm giving you all the ones that they gave me. That's that's what they said. Anyway, he was actually there on August 6th, and we're just finding out about it now, I guess, but he praised the clinic's, quote, tireless efforts to provide life-saving medical care. Now, here's what Identity Alaska promotes, that children should learn that doctors assign gender to babies by making a guess. That's what they teach. That's what they teach. Let's think about this for a minute. A guy who works in the cabinet of the President of the United States and dresses like a woman went to Alaska and praised an organization that tells kids that when a baby is born and the doctor holds it up and sees a penis, he doesn't know that it's a boy, but he might guess that it is. This is a guy who was hired by the President of the United States of America. And instead of somebody putting a net over him and taking him away to someplace really nice and quiet to work on his mental disorder, he sent around the country to praise organizations who are spreading the same mental disorder that he suffers from. Here's another interesting policy identity, a policy at, I should say, Identity Alaska. Instead of using the word mother, they recommend using terms like egg producer or egg carrier. And here's the best one. Instead of using the word men, their language guide suggests that people use the term XY individuals. (laughs) And someone connected to the federal government of the United States traveled thousands of miles to tell these people that they're doing a great job and to keep up the good work. Aunt Rachel's pushing hard to make his mental disorder mainstream. That's okay if he's just a mentally deranged psychiatrist who can be ignored But he's out there promoting this stuff in the name of the United States government. He wants everybody in America to believe that when a doctor delivers a baby and sees that it has a penis, he shouldn't assume that it's a boy. He should hold it up and say, well, I'm going to take a stab at this. I think this is a boy we're looking at here. He shouldn't assume that, though, although that might be a good guess. Who, Who votes for someone for president who's okay with this? Seriously. And if you took a poll, what percentage of Democrat voters would say they agree with this? If it's any more than 5%, there's no hope for the country. And when we come back, we're going to talk to the author of one of the best-selling books in the country, Chadwick Moore. The name of the book is Tucker, and it's about Tucker Carlson. But he's running into issues with Amazon, possibly trying to hold his sales down. And in our second half hour, Professor of Communications at DePaul University, Jeff McCall, to talk about media coverage of all things Trump and Biden, and also the convergence of journalism and activism. Stick around.
Well, Chadwick Moore is an author with good timing. He wrote a book called Tucker. It's about Tucker Carlson. And just when he was getting ready to release it, Fox fired Tucker Carlson. became a pretty big story. And the sales, by all accounts, have been great. But there's a problem, apparently. Uh, Chadwick joins us now. Thanks for coming on again, Chadwick. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So uh, what's up with Amazon? Well, wouldn't you know it, uh, (laughs) the first week sales, it appears from our numbers that Amazon, which is the by and large the biggest bookseller in the country, if not the world, just reported no sales for the book, even though uh, they had about 8,000 copies on hand and they, within an hour of the book being announced, they sold out on their website. You couldn't even order it anymore. Uh, and, uh, what that had the effect of doing was the first week, you know, the reported sales that the bestsellers list used and everything were pretty small. So of course, you know, mainstream media was saying this book flops, Tucker bombs, nobody cares about Tucker Carlson. He needed Fox news, you know, the usual stuff. Um, and then suddenly Amazon started reporting sales again and the numbers just came out today. And wouldn't, you know, we're, uh, the number three best-selling book, uh, for Publishers Weekly and number four best-selling book for the Wall Street Journal list. So, uh, you know, that to me just speaks of how, uh, you know, Americans, number one, are still really upset about the fact that Tucker Carlson was pulled off the air for ideological reasons from Fox News. And also that there are plenty of people out there that still want to try to hurt his reputation and pretend that he is irrelevant and doesn't matter. Uh, are we talking about sabotage here from Amazon? So not only did they, did they apparently not report any sales numbers for the first week, uh, they also – so the, the way it works is there's a pre-order process. The book's on pre-order for two months, and uh, then uh, the day one sales, which is August 1st, that's the release date, all those sales from the last two months are supposed to go to day one. So you don't – a sale doesn't count until your book ships. Uh, what Amazon was doing is that everyone who pre-ordered about – we did a customer poll, 40% of them still hadn't gotten their book two weeks after – uh, the launch date. People who were ordering after the book launched were getting their book in a couple days. Not only that, anyone who pre-ordered was getting, and I have hundreds and hundreds of messages from people telling me this, getting messages from Amazon asking uh, if they wanted to cancel their order. If they wanted to keep their order, they had to go on a desktop computer and affirm that, yes, I still want this book, uh, not, on their, not on their phone or not on their app. And then if uh, they didn't do that, the order automatically canceled. Not only that, there are people who were saying Amazon was giving them a six-week delivery date after the book was launched, and then they ordered it and got it in like a day or two. There's tons of stuff that we've documented. My, my publisher, All, Season Pre- All Seasons Press, has got uh, some lawyers involved. We are, and the reason for this is they're looking into what's happening. If they find malfeasance, we're going to have an official complaint with the Federal Trade Commission and maybe further action after that. The reason for this being is, you know, big tech does this stuff all the time mm-hmm. and people are just supposed to roll over and take it. So now that Amazon's reporting numbers, we're making it on the bestseller list, we're supposed to be fine and happy. The damage is already done. And we want to ensure that conservative book publishers don't have this problem with Amazon anymore. So we're going to fight back and we're going to find out what happened. And if they did try to sabotage our week one sales to get those negative headlines, which came out of the liberal media. So why is it important that they get the numbers right for public consumption from, from your standpoint as the author? You're, and what, what, what would be their motivation other than they just don't like conservatives or and or Tucker oh, Carlson? Totally. Yeah. So, th- I mean, this isn't a vanity thing for me because I knew the book was selling, you know, yeah, yeah. and it's mainly it's about 
so there's a company called BookScan that all the bestseller lists rely upon. And BookScan relies on retailers to tell them how many books they sold. We looked at our list from what we sold. No problems with Barnes & Noble. No problems with Walmart. No problems with Books A Million. Any of these books. Uh, basically, the total number of books that was reported to the bestseller list by BookScan for week one were essentially those retailers minus Amazon. Amazon is about 70% of the book market. Yeah. So uh, the problem with that is, is if this book you know, was long hyped, if you want to really hurt a book's reputation and hurt its further sales, then the week, if the week one sales are small, then that's what does it. Because it's like, look, nobody bought this book. Nobody cares. Uh-huh. That, so, and if we, week one sales are great and you're on the New York Times bestseller list, well, then they take off from there. More bookstores want the book. More people want to buy it. That's the point of hurting week one sales. So if Amazon uh, decided they didn't like Tucker Carlson or didn't like you or just don't like conservatives, it would be real easy for them to uh, absolutely destroy your book. Uh, at least, if not destroy it, at least really damage the number of sales you're going to end up with long term. Yeah, this is something that, and again, you know, I'm not trying to play in the victim. I'm happy. I see yeah. how the book's selling. Yeah. You know what? But what the bigger issue is, is when you have such power in the hands of so few people and so few companies, yeah. and in this case, for book publishers, one company, Amazon, you can see what can happen. They can screw with you. They can do any number of things. Now, people are saying, why would Amazon have it out for you or Tucker? I mean, I, not, not me. Nobody cares about yeah. me. Uh, but, you know, uh, the only thing I can come back to is that I think at the top, everyone's friends. And whoever doesn't like Tucker could have just made a phone call. Yeah. I think, you know, it seems like it was, we don't want the, we want to get some bad headlines and say this book flopped. We want to make it seem like Tucker uh, needed mainstream media and that he's irrelevant now and nobody cares about him, uh, which couldn't be further from the truth. I was going to ask you that. Someone could call Amazon up and say, gee, that's a nice book you have there. It would really be a shame if uh, it looked like it wasn't selling and it, and it killed the sales. And yeah. It would really help us out over here at Fox. That, I, I doesn't, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Who knows? Someone could have said, hey, Jeff Bezos, uh, there's this book coming out. You want to do me a favor, by the way, you know, see you in – St. Bart's next weekend, whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, you know, of course, that's how stuff like that works. Um, and uh, it's one thing we have done. So uh, also looking into our lawyers looking into this and possibly filing an FTC complaint. If we see something, we've also uh, been in contact with some members of Congress who are on the Energy and Commerce mm-hmm. Committee. And so we're letting them, them know what's going on and uh, having them start looking into things as well. Because this is, you know, we want to set up for all conservative books and it's time to start punching back at this sort of censorship. You know, just yesterday, Glenn, Apple pulled Glenn Beck's show yeah. off iTunes out of nowhere. Uh, and then, you know, put it back up and said, oops, sorry. No, you know, we need more accountability than that. Yeah, I think they, they, think they destroyed his archive. Or they, yeah. they at least yeah. eliminated it. I don't know if they put it back up. Um, oh, yeah. They, 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 well, after he raised a big stink about it, they put it back up. They do this all the time, and they pretend, we don't know what happened. It was a glitch. Oops, sorry. There needs to be consequences for that because we all know that's not true. Do you uh, are you aware of uh, any other authors of the wrong kinds of books like yours uh, for Amazon that um, that are experiencing the same thing you are? Or anything close to it? Oh, just about. I've had you know at least a dozen uh, conservative authors from big names to smaller names reach out and say I've had a million problems with Amazon. 
maybe nothing as blatant as this because their their books weren't expected to launch so bigly. Um, I know Carrie Lake has had tons of problems. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head of other people. Uh, but, you know, conservative authors have said they've had millions of problems. We, and also just weird, weird, strange things happening to their books on Amazon. Well, as I mentioned, you we're talking to uh, Chad McMore. He's the author of Tucker, a book about Tucker Carlson. Um, you launched the book, as I said, at almost the exact same time as Tucker was fired. Was the initial reaction what you had expected or better? Yeah, so we, um, we actually pushed back publication once he got fired, and, and I interviewed him. Uh, several more times and we added new chapters we updated the book i got the you know information about the aftermath uh and also you know some chapters about what what possibly happened and uh you know the the timing was you know it was there i mean of course i wasn't i wasn't happy that tucker carlson wasn't on the air anymore but it was a time when people you know were really missing him and mm-hmm. you know and so many hundreds of readers of you know, reached out and they're, they're really enjoying the book, which is a great thing to hear. I, you know, it was a big responsibility to write this book. And Tucker really trusted me to tell his story. He never asked to see a word of it. Uh, he let me into his life to write this book about him. And a lot of people are saying that, you know, it, it's helping them fill this void because, you know, his show was so important to so many people and his voice. Uh, and now they're getting to see into his life and kind of uh, know, get to know who he is as a person and as a man. And uh, and while they're awaiting his uh, his return. Yeah. Well, um, we had you on back in May when the book came out, had you on the show. Um, and but for people who have uh, maybe are aware of the book, but haven't heard you talk about it here or anywhere else. Uh, just let me tell just let me ask you a little bit about the book. Um, just for starters, what would people find in this book? Maybe that would jump out of them as something that they would either be surprised to hear about Tucker Carlson or just something they were not aware of? Well, I think um, big picture, I think people really understand how the things that Tucker is mostly focused on is he's less concerned with politics per se. He's really interested in the bigger questions of family, morality, spirituality, beauty, nature, love, these big things that he sees as, uh, you know, directly related to politics. That's sort of the man that I, I found and that found him to be and wrote about. Uh, I think people would probably be mostly surprised to learn about his childhood and about, especially about his uh, mother who um, abandoned her family when Tucker was six years old and he never saw her again since he was six. She died in 2011. She wanted to be a kind of art world groupie, uh, got into drugs and alcohol I got to talk to Tucker and his wife and Tucker's dad all about her and, and also people who knew her when she was this, this kind of art scene girl uh, and wrote and put that into the book. Uh, but that's not something that, that a lot of people know about, about his, his childhood. Yeah, and, and what is next for him? Well, they are, um, it's been reported that they are uh, raising money to start a new media company. You know, I know that Tucker isn't going to go to another network. Uh, he, he wants to be his own boss. And uh, they're looking to start their own thing. Uh, and his executive producer, Justin, told me recently that um, people are, can expect to see a lot more Tucker than they ever did on Fox News. Uh, the problem, of course, being that Tucker is still a Fox employee. He's still getting a paycheck. He's yeah. still under contract. So they're, they're trying to figure that out. That contract extends until after the next presidential election. Well, if they haven't gotten out of it by now, is there any reason to believe they're going to get out of it? The contract, I mean. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, Fox doesn't want to let him go. They want to keep paying him to not be on the air mm-hmm. uh, and make that 
uh, make of that what you will. Um, but I know Tucker is fighting it, uh, and I'm not sure quite where they are right now in that in that battle. Yeah, I had uh, I worked in TV for a long time, and uh, every contract I had had a no compete clause in it. But if um, everybody knew that if you were fired, the no compete clause went away. That's what I don't understand about this one. You could have a no compete clause, and you say, "Well, I quit." And I understand having a, a clause that says, "Well, you can quit, but we're not we're not letting you go across the street." But if they fire yeah. you, they don't want you anymore. So they shouldn't have any say about where you go. I've never understood how they get away with that. It's it's crazy. And, and you know, a lot of contracts, I guess, I don't know if – I haven't seen Tucker's contract, so I don't know if it has that in there. But yeah. it's also, uh, you know, a, I guess I call it a right to play. Like not only do you – or right to perform. So not only do I agree to perform, you have to let me perform. Uh, and there – so maybe Tucker's doesn't have that clause in it. But yeah. Maybe future Fox hosts, when they're renewing their contract, are going to be looking at this situation and uh, putting some stipulations in there. Yeah. Well, actually, I lied because I, I had a no-compete clause. I worked for the ABC affiliate here, and my contract ran out, and I wasn't going to sign the one they offered me. And I left, and I wasn't fired. Uh, they just didn't sign my contract, but I, had to, I sat out for a year. And the CBS affiliate here in town paid me to not work for a year, which which is a pretty good deal. So I have that I have that in common with Tucker. But um, have you kept in touch with him? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and he's you know he's he seems very happy, uh, and you know he's he's kind of had he's had time to step away from the noise, and and I think that's done him really well. Um, but I know he's he's just frustrated because he really wants to be out there working and although he's doing his thing on twitter sporadically from what i understand is that fox didn't include twitter in their non-compete which is how he's able to do that mm-hmm. uh but he's also not getting paid by twitter um from what i also understand is he's paying you know basically his whole production team at fox is now with him they were all fired and most of them he brought them along so i think he's paying them all out of his own pocket right now uh just so they have something to do and uh you know when he starts back up he's gonna have all those people with him again that's interesting so he how many of his production crew, did, did they get fired, and how many just quit, or did all of them get fired? So it was, it was uh, not, about nine who left when Tucker was fired. One was fired, Justin, his executive producer. A lot of the others just left because they, be, they wanted to do whatever Tucker was doing. The remaining nine people were then fired in one fell swoop um, by Fox, and uh, that's very unusual because, you know, when you work for a network like Fox, you're not hired to work on a show. You're hired to work for the network. Mm-hmm. So if your show gets taken off, you get moved around to another show. Um, but there was a sort of ideological purge happening. And uh, I think Fox didn't want any Tucker loyalists left, although I can tell you there are plenty of Tucker loyalists in that building and they all talk to me <laughs> uh, secretly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, so uh, they were all let go. And, you know. They all have homes at Tucker's next job. They were a really close-knit team. I saw them work together in writing this book. Uh, they trusted one another. There was no backstabbing. Uh, and, um, and they're following their boss literally into the woods. Well, I have about less than a minute left. I Just real quick, I was wondering, as someone who worked on TV myself, uh, how much was his show produced and how much of it was just him? And the producers did his bidding. There's a difference between somebody who just sits there and reads a teleprompter you know, uh, the uh, words that somebody else wrote and someone who writes all of his own stuff. Oh, totally. 
So those um, those A block monologues that he was so famous yeah, for yeah. Uh, that's all Tucker one hundred percent. I figured that, and yeah. that's really his creative outlet. You know, mm-hmm. like because he, he comes from the world of print media. He didn't come. He didn't start off in television. He's right. a natural writer. Uh, so that's all him. Uh, another thing that's interesting is he gets a lot of story ideas from, and I write about this in the book, from random people, you know, waiters, uh, flight attendants, nurses, yep. people he's just met out in the world, janitors, uh, doctors, um, who just send him stories all day long, that things you wouldn't see in the mainstream media. That, and that's why his show would be covering a lot of topics that you didn't see anywhere else. It had a kind of mom and pop feel to it. Um, and then, you know, of course, his production team would go through stories and bet them and see if they check out or not. And yeah. Things like that to say, too. Uh, but certainly those A-block monologues, that's, that's all his writing. And it's great writing, too. Hey, Chadwick, uh, good luck with the book the rest of the way. Thanks for coming on. Hope to talk again. Oh, thanks, man. Thank you so much. Okay, that's Chadwick Moore. The book is Tucker. We'll be right back. Well, most of the media haven't disappointed this week. There have been uh, plenty of, uh, has been plenty of cheerleading, lots of uh, wishful thinking journalism going on out there. Jeffrey McCall is an observer of the media. He's a professor of communications at DePaul University, a media critic for The Hill, and a regular guest on the show. He joins us now. Jeff, thanks for coming on again. Uh, You're welcome, John. So um, maybe I should start by asking if you saw anything that you wouldn't have expected from the media on the latest uh, Trump indictment. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you bring that up because uh, it's very easy to anticipate how the the establishment media will treat any particular topic. Uh, and, then, and, and it's sad that they are so predictable because I think really when the journalism industry operates at its best, it's maybe not predictable that it maybe goes where the facts lead, maybe, or maybe they enterprise on a topic that people wouldn't expect. So when they're so easily predictable, that's not necessarily healthy, I think, for the news agenda. And you talked about wishful thinking journalism. And, you know, we saw some of that yesterday. Well, we've seen it a lot with the Trump indictments, but we saw a lot of that yesterday with Biden doing his victory lap on the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. Uh, And and the the news reporting on that was so celebratory, like, oh, Bidenomics, the Inflation Reduction Act, this is so wonderful. Look, inflation is not as bad as it used to be, and it's all because of Biden. And I'm thinking, if you hear, you know, honest-to-goodness economists, they will say for sure that the Inflation Reduction Act probably did not help inflation, probably actually made it harder to recover, and that the whole thing is basically a mirage. But if you're watching NBC News or CNN, you would get this, again, wishful thinking journalism just talking about how wonderful Bidenomics are when really it's just totally a propaganda uh, operation. And it's sad because, again, as we've said before, journalism needs to be enterprising. It needs to go where the facts lead. And when journalism becomes an arm of the administration, which, you know, maybe that's a bit of an overstatement, but not too much. (laughs) When, when media become an arm of the administration, we really end up with the potential for corruption and misinformation. And that's a sad thing for us because we need an informed citizenry. And I think when you get right down to it, United States citizens are not as informed as they need to be on the critical issues of the day because the media establishment won't do its job as it was constitutionally set up to do. Now, I have a question for you that I wasn't going to get to uh, until later. 
if I got to it at all. It's kind of low on my list of things I wanted to talk to you about. But since you brought up uh, Joe Biden's uh, trip around to brag about his um, Inflation Reduction Act, uh, I want to ask you a question to get your opinion on this. Uh, he actually lied in that in that uh, during that speech. He said that he went to Pittsburgh and he went to and to a uh, where a bridge collapsed and he saw I saw the bridge collapse. He said that. Okay. Now what what yeah, actually right. what actually happened was and that was a huge story here. The bridge collapsed. That's, that's the the local TV stations were wall to wall live coverage. You know, outside of program regular programming. And it was a day when the president was scheduled to come here. So it was a gigantic story all day and for a few days. This A bridge collapsed in Pittsburgh. There's a lot of bridges here. So um, he said that he – he said, I was in Pittsburgh and I saw the bridge collapse. It was 200 feet above the ground and thank God uh, schools were, not, were out. <laughs> Jeff, he got here like three hours after the bridge collapsed. <laughs> but here's my question for you. Okay, two sure. things. Well, Fox, I think, is – well, I, I, I'm guessing, but uh, I'm pretty sure Fox is the only uh, news outlet, cable outlet anyway, that called him on it, called him on lying. I think it's a gigantic lie, by the way, but he, 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 they called him on it. My question for you, we don't talk about local news very much. I know that the ABC affiliate here in Pittsburgh, where I happened to work for seven years, I know they didn't mention it, Okay. And I, I'm going to guess, and I get in trouble. I have to watch. I don't get in trouble when I uh, make statements about local news because I, I can't watch it. So there's a good chance that I, I, I can't criticize it for something I didn't see. But I'm going to feel pretty confident in, in telling you that they didn't cover it. But even if they did, my question for you is, if, if I'm the news director at that station, and tell me if you agree, that is my lead story yesterday. Lead story. Because remember now, this was a gigantic story when it happened here a few months ago, and and yeah. he, I, that's my lead story. Not because it's um, crucially Im- important, or uh, but because it's an interesting story. The president just told a whopper about Pittsburgh, and everybody in Pittsburgh who s- would see this would know he's lying about it. That's a great. Yeah. That's a great story. I don't think they did it. I think that is a story, frankly, and for a couple of reasons. One is it was an impactful story in your area, obviously, but that you have the president of the United States commenting about that important story and saying something that was not true. Now, for the rest of the nation, that it's not true, you know, is is worth noting, but doesn't directly impact them, you know, for people who live in St. Louis or someplace like that. But I think the main thing here is that uh, the establishment media and and a lot of the local news outlets are considered establishment sure, yeah. because they're willing to run cover for a president who says something that is blatantly false, verifiably false, and they're not going to point that out. And now, again, I, I know the apologists for Joe Biden would just say, oh, that's Joe being Joe. Oh, that's just, you know, Grandpa Joe. He forgot or something like that. But it's not one of those things where he just forgot. He has to know that he never saw that. Uh, and and if, he's, if he's mentally uh, deficient to the point where he, he thinks he did see that, right. that's another whole can of worms. That's, and that, that's that, a, another whole story that needs to be reported. That's, that's that what I mean. Guy, it's a, it's a one-sentence comment that he made. Yeah. And it, in, in Pittsburgh, it should have been all over the media here. Yeah. And, and again, it's one of those things. If he's making it up, and he knows he's making it up, let's point it out as a as a falsehood, a fabrication, 
if he thinks that he really did see that, then we need to get psychologists on board to try to analyze why a guy who can't actually witness something would imagine that he did. And yeah. so, so it's news anyway, but I, I think this is the one thing that really disturbs me about the way the, the Biden administration has been covered going, well, even before it was the Biden administration, during the Biden campaign, is that he can say things that are verifiably false, and the media just dismiss it as just old Joe. And I'm thinking, that's not sufficient, because when Trump was president, every time he said something that was the least bit off, which, by the way, he did from time to time, I'm not saying that he didn't, but anytime Trump said something that wasn't verifiably true, true, it was the front page of the Washington Post, the New York Times ran with it, CNN had all kinds of analysts calling him a liar and stuff like that. And I'm just thinking, we need consistency here because we don't need a press that is supporting administration. I mean, this, this kind of reminds you of like the old Soviet press when they used to cover for Nikita Khrushchev and yeah. Brezhnev and yeah. people like that. Because they could say things that were verifiably untrue, and the Soviet press, of course, was part of the government, would would you know pander to them, propagandize the thing, explain it away, or whatever. And I'm just thinking that is not healthy for a healthy republic. No, and everything you said is true. <laughs> and but the thing for me is, it's an interesting story, and local news stinks. They have they'll have like eight three minute weather segments in an hour, and if they don't think and you would what happened to looking for interesting stories like, uh, boy this is interesting the the president of the United States just told a whopper of a lie and it's about Pittsburgh how about that and then yeah it's 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 interesting it's yeah and and, and local news uh, does sometimes serve a good function sure. I mean I, I watch Indianapolis news a great deal. Um, there are some stations that are better than others, and mm-hmm. occasionally they're doing a good job. But but you must admit, I think, everyone who watches local news would have to admit, they focus a lot on weather. Yeah. Uh, they focus a lot on what I call cop shop news, where they're just waiting for a traffic accident or a fire run or a shooting because there's no enterprise there. You just go cover and stand on the scene. Yep. And so local news, I think, has also let us down because they don't do a much they, – they, they don't do enough coverage – of the economics in their area. They don't do another, enough coverage of local government. They don't do enough coverage of education. I mean, there's a no. study out last year that showed in local news, only 3% of all the local news time is spent on any matter related to education. Uh, and I'm just thinking education is a huge story in the United States. Especially recently. Now. Yeah. And to think that we're only spending 3% of total news time on education, well, that that's a lot more important than whether the convenience store got held up last weekend. Right, and, and Jeff, it's lazy. Anybody can sit in the assign- at the assignment desk and, and monitor the police radio, and, and, and then you, you're looking at your hour that you have to fill, and if you're a producer and you fill 12 of it with weather, um, your, your job's pretty much done. It, it actually requires a little bit of, as you said, enterprise once in a while, creativity, and that's why they all look the same, and they all stink. It's just it's unbelievable yeah. how bad it is. Yeah, and you mentioned that uh, the, the the local TV stations are generally lazy. Yep. Um, I, 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 I don't think that's too far off. Uh, and frankly, uh, one of the reasons that might be is because their role models are at uh, the establishment network television mm-hmm. operations, and they're 
not particularly energetic uh, or industrious either. And so it, it's not surprising that te- television news as a whole is in decline. Uh, and we can't be surprised that network television ratings are on the decline. Uh, local television is kind of holding on, but uh, still not as not as well as what we would have seen a generation ago. Uh, and it And it does mean that people who want real news can't get it from establishment networks, and they're increasingly less likely to get it from their local establishment media outlets, which means they're going to get it from social media, which is not a very good place to be getting news, or they're just not going to get it at all, which means then we have an uninformed citizenry. Yeah. So um, I had a dis- I want to see if I can get you to put your professor hat on here for a second. Okay. Um, I had a discussion here a couple of days ago with Ken LaCourt. Uh, he's kind of a regular guest here now. He's a former Fox producer, was with Fox from the early days. I asked him about whether he, see- he saw a change in people who got into the TV news business and saw an increase in activism over journalism and that, you know, that they came to the job thinking that that was their job, was to be an activist more than a journalist. And I'm just wondering if you notice any of that in the attitude of your students or if, or if you actually have to make sure that they don't leave uh, DePaul University with that attitude, do whatever you can to prevent it. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting uh, phenomenon these days. Uh, I must say the students I work with are pretty bright. I really like them. Most of them are not coming in to be ideologues if they're interested in the news industry. Most of them are coming in, I think, with the right values in place. I think the problem is that a lot of colleges and universities around the country, uh, they are trying to make activists out of journalists. So uh, if you go to, like, the Northwestern J School, you're going there maybe with a straight face that you want to be an objective and enterprising journalist. But while you're there, you're going to be indoctrinated. And in fact, just recently, I was on the website of the University of Texas at Austin. And interestingly, their journalism program now uh, blatantly says that their, initi- their, their objectives are to create solidarity journalism, where journalism is, the, is being done to promote solidarity with oppressed people and uh, you know, underprivileged people. And I'm thinking, hey, well, journalism actually should help them, but you help solidarity and you help underprivileged people by doing good journalism, not by pandering to those people or pushing ideological dogmas where journalism then becomes propaganda. I'm just thinking, let's forget this solidarity journalism. Let's do objective journalism about the needs of real human beings, and we'll get all that we need to have done in terms of addressing society's problems without having the underlying or the undertow, so to speak, of ideological dogma, which I think is very dangerous. And and it's happening at many of the premier journalism schools around the country. Uh, And so it's no wonder then when people graduate from UT Austin or someplace like that and they get hired to go work as a network producer or in the local television, they show up and they think they're crusading and they think that they're activists to push the agendas of the woke professors they had as undergraduates. And I just don't think these schools are doing a service, number one, to the journalism industry or to the students that they're supposedly trying to educate as opposed to uh, indoctrinate. And certainly they're not doing a service to the citizenry and the nation and the society at large by pushing agendas into journalism as opposed to letting journalism pursue its kind of historical professional fairness and objectivity. 
I have about a minute and a half left, and I, I kind of wrestle with this. I work as a consultant for a school here locally, uh, teaching kids how to read a teleprompter and how to write and you know some other things about produ- producing news stories and sports stories. And I'm just wondering, Jeff, and i got about a minute left, what do you think you are preparing your students for now as opposed to what you might have – is it a lot tougher to figure out what you're preparing them for now because it used to be you were going to get out and you're going to get a job in radio or TV and do news or sports or whatever. Now there's so much out there. What is DePaul University preparing journalism students for? <laughs> well, I'm not going to speak necessarily yeah. for my own university, but I can speak for what I'm trying to do in my classrooms you know, there was a time where you were trying to prepare people to say, hey, I want you to go out and be a, an effective journalist at a television station or a radio yeah. operation or something like that. My thinking in this day and age is to try to prepare them to be critical thinkers, rational thinkers, and effective communicators. And then at some point, they'll have to figure out what avenues or what you know pursuits they engage in, because it may not be a traditional television station. It might not be a traditional radio station. They may have to become communicators uh, through any number of different avenues. And I just want them to be prepared as critical thinkers and effective writers. Yeah, and I, I tell them the same thing. Uh, you're going to be in front of a camera or a microphone wherever you go. You're still going to have to learn how to get from you to the person who's watching or listening. And so, you betcha. Yeah. Hey, hey uh, Jeff, as always, great to have you on. Great stuff. Hope to talk soon. Thank you very much. Okay, that's Jeffrey McCall of DePaul University, and I'll be right back. So, uh, is this your lucky day? I, 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 I don't know if uh, you could be much more unlucky than this, but uh, this is the anniversary of something that I've always thought was amazing in, in baseball, which I didn't witness, but I do remember hearing about it. Richie Ashburn was a guy who played for the Phillies, Really good hitter. I think he might have been a switch hitter, but I maybe a left-handed hitter. But anyway, he was uh, like a little single hitter. You know, he he'd probably had twenty home runs his entire career. He played a long time, but he just used to. He was one of those guys who used to foul off a lot of pitches. That's what those guys do. So on this date, what is this? August seventeenth, nineteen fifty-seven. He fouled off a pitch, and it hurt somebody. You know, lined into the seats, and they got hurt and oh everybody okay and they're <laughs> so they're they're taking the person out you know he's whoever it was I can't think I don't know if it was a woman or a man but they were hurt pretty bad and they're taking him out and uh, Richie fouled off another pitch and hit him again <laughs> I mean it's I guess is it okay to laugh now how many years later is that it's like you know 60 years late 60 some years later 65 years later whatever it is um yeah that's what happened. The guy gets hit, and he's getting carted out. So he's, you know, going up the aisle. And, okay, let's get back to play. And the next pitch, Richie fouled another one, <laughs> hit him again. The guy was fine. Whoever I can't remember if it was a guy or uh, a woman, but the, the person, uh, I think they took him, him or her to the hospital, and they, they were fine. But, you know, and you are, I think you're allowed to laugh at it now or 65 days later, years later. By the way, one and I did I do remember one time I was working at Channel Four, and I was looking we were looking through the highlights of a game, the Pirate game. There was a foul ball. I, I want to say it was hit by Willie Stargell. I don't know. I don't remember who hit it, but it went into the seats. And a guy on the first base on the first base side, and it was pretty crowded down there. He made a nice catch, you know, on the foul ball. He got applause and everything. Later in the game, there was a foul ball to the third base side. Same thing. Nice crowd over there. 
Same guy made a nice catch. Two catches like that on the same night, two sides of the field. I saw it from the. I was in the press box and I saw it. That's what. I, not, and I remember now. And then I, I took it back. As soon as I saw it, I said, "We got to get this on the air." I just happened to see it because I was there. I went back and looked to make sure. Same guy, two foul balls, same game, great catch, two different sides of the plate. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.